Paul. Hey, Danielle. How's it going? Super, thanks for asking. You? Good. Are you busy? Yeah. Where art thou? Where art thou? Ugh. So, let's talk about John and Greece. Wait, what? We're, we're doing a musical now? No, it's it's classics. No, you're right. Total, total classics. No, like ancient Greece. Whoa, whoa, whoa. Hold on now. I'm not that old. I think it was made in like 1978. Are we talking about the same John Walsh? Yes, of course we are. But his last name's Travolta. Just turn on the skate machine. Fine. I'm going to ask you a question first. Thanks for calling. Hello, Danielle. What should we talk about today, my friends? Uh, who's John Walsh? Uh, oh, that's, wow, that's a deep existential kind of question for uh, right out of the books. But I guess I describe myself in this context as a proud graduate of the University of Guelph and now equally proud to be back as a faculty member in the College of Arts, teaching in the Classical Studies program in the School of Languages and Literatures. Lovely. How long have you been in this program? Well, I've been in it twice. So I was <laughs> in it as a student and then um, very, very happily in 2009, uh, I was able to return first as a sessional lecturer and a tenure track faculty member uh, in the program. So maybe you can answer this question better than most uh, since you were a student yourself. Why does a student take classical studies? <laughs> That's an interesting uh, question, and one I think really is perhaps shocking to a lot of people. Simple enjoyment and pleasure. And I studied the ancient world first and foremost because I find it intellectually rewarding and deeply, deeply interesting. In short, it's just fun. If as a student you're fascinated by uh, the great questions of existence, of being, of living, and how life works and how society works, Classical studies is a natural place for you to inquire about, in fact, being a human being. And in many cases, that can have uh, very rewarding outcomes leading to fascinating careers. Maybe not so much because of the study, I mean, I hate to admit it, but because the people who undertake such a challenging and rewarding study are themselves so fundamentally interesting uh, that employers seek them out and see them as natural contributors to their organization. What parallels can we find with today's society and what you've learned from the past? Is it okay, now, history repeating well, itself or are we just... <laughs> sure, that could be depressingly interesting, I think, for young people to look at another group of people, another time as a way of speaking, um, using it, say, as a model to discuss some of the most complex issues of today. It's very revealing about our own culture. Say, for example, how we view the Spartans, how we view the Athenians, how we view the Roman Republic versus the Roman Empire. It tells us a lot about our own cultural values in the moment. And can you make parallels? Like, who would be the Spartans today? And who would be the <laughs> Romans today? I've only seen the movie 300, so mostly shirtless guys. Well, I, you know, a shirt, shirtless guys in politics, we only need point to Putin for... Uh, yes. <laughs> and, and in many ways, really, uh, 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 Putin's doing exactly, say, what 
many of the emperors would have done uh, to use that kind of physical expression of machismo or something of that nature to speak to the general robust nature of their reign. So Putin's attempt at showing himself playing hockey, um, being shirtless, hunting and riding on horses, say someone like the Emperor Commodus uh, would recognize um, that kind of political propaganda because he portrayed himself as a modern Hercules, uh, proudly showing his uh, physique in public, even as Putin very recently was skating around scoring eight goals in a hockey tournament. So the Emperor Commodus would participate in gladiatorial matches himself to make that same kind of dialogue about the nature of his power. But the idea of do we learn, um, I don't know. I think um, evidence suggests that our, our nature um, is so profoundly strong um, that our intellect, that our rational side is always lagging behind. That all sounds pretty yeah. depressing, like you said. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I don't know, perhaps, perhaps reassuring, because it's always in the struggle. I think what the beauty of, of humanity is our effort to confront that and to try and ascend through culture, um, through literature, through art, uh, through the best parts of us. And I, I think that's the triumph, really, of the human spirit, which is why the humanities, the College of Arts, are fundamental to our way of being, and ultimately we have why anyone should study classics. <laughs> Makes sense. Um, so how would you say that your students remain optimistic after learning all these things and seeing these repetitions currently and, and take that into the world after school and try and provide a career for themselves? Oh, wow. That's uh, that's a great question. One, um, I think that young people by nature are protected against cynicism uh, by their youth themselves. And the answer, uh, Danielle, is unfortunately over time they won't. Um, they'll become embittered and cynical <laughs> and they'll manifest all of the things that they railed against with the, with the odd exception. I think one of the freeing things for students, certainly was for me, is to realize that there's very little modern about the modern world. And that I think a lot of the anxiety we face is this sort of false idea born of ignorance of the past that everything is uniquely terrible today and that we're in such trying times when in fact we're not we're in a I, I know in isolated uh, situations this would seem untrue, but we're in a generally ironic period of history. Even in the last hundred years, we've had profound periods of chaos and war. Um, we perceive things as great cultural upheavals, the internet, social media, but I assure you the introduction of the book, uh, uh, printing press... It'll never uh, catch on. <laughs> well... <laughs> Right, and there was the same kind of angst and hair-pulling um, at the introduction of these technologies. So if anything, it should reassure students that everything that is seen as particularly dire and um, angst-causing today, in fact, is just part of the natural ebb and sinusoidal flow of human history. If you're lucky enough, you live during one of the uh, periods in which life is flourishing and there's relative peace. And I, I feel as though we're still in one of those great cultural moments today looking back over you know 
several thousand years of history. It, it's all reassuringly normal. And, and I hope that's what the students take away and say, look, we're just in, in another phase of human struggle to understand our place, how we belong in others. Science and literature, myth and art and culture all try and approximate some sort of rational explanation or understanding of what we're doing here and what the meaning of our life is. Yeah, um, kind of like we've been here before. What have we learned from that? Exactly. And how are we going to go forward? That's right. And what we really learn is we don't know a thing at all. Nothing. It's what Socrates <laughs> takes away from the Oracle of Delphi, right? We're only smart enough to know that we don't know a thing. So sit back, drink a glass of wine, have a good time, and um, you know, eat some grapes and appreciate some good art, and try <laughs> and enjoy some poetry, and don't hurt each other too much. There you go. It's poetic. Uh, that also sounds like a great motto for your trip to Greece, though. That must have been applied oh. while you were there. <laughs> Yeah, we did have a bit of grape and wine, I assure you. Um, <laughs> it wouldn't have been an experiential learning trip without that. One of the things I, I, I really believe in, and I'm not unique in this uh, at all, but I'm really proud that our university embraces the same philosophy, is that um, while the classroom and the study halls and the library are incredible places for learning, there is something about the experience of things. We're studying classical studies. Um, our lab isn't over in the science complex. Our, our, our lab is in Greece itself. So every year we lead a trip either to Greece or to Italy to see firsthand the remains of uh, classical culture, to breathe the air, stand in the places, feel the sun on our backs, and get a, a closer understanding or at least breathe some life into what can seem like an abstract idea through text. So at the start of May, I joined, people say led, but I joined a group of 36 griffins and we traveled to Greece. Wow. Now, yeah, 36 is quite a number. I draw the line in the sand and I was going to take a group of 12. And by the time I was done, that group was 36. Wow. Is 36 griffins, is that considered like a gaggle of griffins? <laughs> well, really, when you travel to a place like Delphi, it's, it's a small invasion. So we, we, we all flew over together and we embarked on a tour of Greece, starting in Athens winding its way through the Peloponnesian Peninsula. We took a cruise of some of the Saronic Islands, wow. traveled to Delphi, the site of the first Olympic Games in northeastern Peloponnesian Peninsula, visited the Oracle of Apollo, visited wow. the museums, the major monuments, and it was just an incredible trip. What do you um, think was, the, I guess, the all highlights, of course. Uh, okay. But what would be one thing that definitely stood out? The highlight for me is watching the students see the monuments. They're all looking at the Parthenon, and I'm looking at them looking at the Parthenon. <laughs> because I tell them to set their bar very high for how the impression they're going to receive. And as, as cynical and world-weary as we think they are by their social media and all that sort of stuff, that fifth-century ideological statement about the power of the aesthetic overwhelms everybody. The other parts of it for me are when I design the tour is as much as possible, I, I try and have all of our lunches together as a group. And that common experience of talking freely, you know, we get up on the wine on the table, we eat the breads and the olives and whatever the local version of Slovakia is. And the conversation flows and the laughter just bubbles around. And uh, there's usually some great mountainside in the background and it's always outside. And very quickly, it's amazing how these barriers that shouldn't exist in education start to vanish. We become what we really should be, which is colleagues and partners in the learning experience. 
We had students from every college on campus. And it was the College of Arts that was the center of the hub of the wheel that drew people in. How do you like, how do you choose though? Yeah, I was or just are you just ask. like everybody gets to go, how, everybody gets the, a ribbon. How do you narrow the, that the, down? There's gotta be the a size ton of, of applicants. The, the size of the bus. The size of the bus. Oh. And it really is it's the first it's the first thirty six we got. Um, I take and what breaks my heart is I have to say to some people don't worry we're going again next year <laughs> how long is the trip because a bus drive to Greece would be a long time <laughs> well it's the swimming really that takes yeah. time. when we all come together and everyone joins and then the flight home they're all best friends and they're walking around the plane and yeah. everyone's talking yeah. backwards to each other and what little part of my heart remains warms gently um, as I see these incredible young people making lifelong friendships and I know some of them have forged lifelong friendships on that trip I hope they forged them with me mm-hmm. how could they not well, that's, that's so it's such a rare experience for students and, and professors alike yeah. it's great and then I get to tell you there's like one really fun moment when we go to Olympia the site of the first Olympic Games games in the 8th century BC and the track the original running track is preserved and we line up on the ancient starting blocks and we sprint the length recreating the first Olympic event which was the sprint of the stadium it's 192 and, and change meters and we line up and griffins run down the track in this great triumphal moment it's humiliating for me since I'm more than twice the age of everyone but I participate nonetheless I seen the video <laughs> yeah I I'm know you have there's a video <laughs> There's two videos, Danielle. (laughs) Uh, And the great, really powerful moment is that more than half of the students I take are women. And if you want to sort of draw parallels and connections, uh, those women would not have been allowed to participate or even view the Olympic Games in in antiquity because it was an event exclusively uh, open to Greek men as a way of maintaining and cementing male privilege in Greek society. That's amazing. So it's a real visual lesson. I've just now finalized plans for next year's trip. I can provide you with that information if you'd like to make it public for me. Sure. Uh, next year's trip does the same thing as the Greece trip, but through Italy. Wow. Tracing, uh, yeah, tracing um, Rome and classical influence through the Renaissance. We land in Milan, uh, travel to Venice, Florence, Assisi, Pompeii, where we see the uh, preserved Roman town that was buried uh, tragically for them, but conveniently for us with the eruption of Vesuvius. And then we finish in Rome, and there's a day cruise to the island of Capri off the western uh, coast of Italy, where the Emperor Tiberius built a luxury palace. And we eat and wine our way from north to south, visiting breathtaking monuments and the great museums and again trace the legacy of Roman and to, to some extent Greek culture is this trip open to staff too yeah like how are you gonna figure out our scholarship yeah because well no that's super serious I, I'm not kidding I would love to take more staff and I'd love to find ways for the college to support that what I really want for the trip is is sort of um, layers of different people from students to recent alumni to staff to faculty to create that unity through travel. Students who are about to graduate can speak to you. Ambassadors for the program. Exactly. Ambassadors for the program, but also ambassadors for life. And there's that kind of idea of the mentorship that develops. And one of the great outcomes 
And I know I was told not to squirm, but I'm squirming because I'm super excited. <laughs> one of the great outcomes from last year's trip is that one of our recent College of Arts graduates, uh, Rebecca Childs, participated on the trip last year and is now employed with the same company. She works downtown on Bloor Street in Toronto in the head office. Nice. Wow. And, and used the experience of going on the trip to land her first major job upon graduation. That's fantastic. Uh, and then she accompanied us back on the trip. And, and now she's looking for someone to help fill that role for her. So there's this idea of circularity and mentorship that is so deeply important, which I should also mention can be done for academic credit as well. One price. And secondly, time. Try and keep the whole thing, including the travel days, maybe 12, 13 days. And it's at the beginning of May, so it doesn't compromise students' ability to have their summer employment. Because one of the things I believe strongly in about the trip is to the most degree possible accessibility. Do they get uh, time to do whatever they want during that trip? Or is every day scheduled and planned? Or do they get downtime? And yeah, are lights out by nine. Yeah. So, yeah. It's a real balance between uh, filling their schedule but not overwhelming them. I have such trust and respect for the young people go on the trip that I certainly expect them as adults enough to burden them with the responsibility of caring for themselves and acting accordingly. They have free evenings, and they, so, and so long as they're up for breakfast at 7 a.m., I ask no question. That's great. Um, so we had a beach day this year if they wanted to go to the beach. I'm not going to take people to Greece and make them drive past along the coast. We just pulled in along the coast. There was a great seafood restaurant right on the beach. Uh, we ate on the veranda. And then after, and then after all lunch. Right, all right, all right, all right. <laughs> and then we all kind of loaded back on the bus and snoozed. And next thing we know, someone said, wake up, you're in Delphi. That is amazing. Not jealous at all. Yeah, no, we're not. Yeah. And they can combine it with one of our experiential learning courses and, right. and use it as a field school. And in that case, then they conceive an individual research project, uh, which can be as diverse as their own interests and hopefully ties the experience into their own studies, whether they be from science, business, uh, or the arts. You know, it can be a paper, it can be all sorts of things, a performance. One of our students is using it as the basis of a play. Mm-hmm. And then we all get together, we have a reunion, and they present their work publicly. The fact that it's attached to um, a course credit and an experiential learning course, that was very, very important to me, that it would have that kind of credibility. Look, I'm not going to uh, sugarcoat it. It's, it's a ton of work. Absolutely ton, ton of work. It's a ton of work, it's but what we're it. seeing right now is it's paying off. Yeah. I'm oh. reading a list of awards here, and I'm wondering if you made up a couple of them. This is amazing. Yeah. It's uh, Clearly for- something's working for you that these students are recognizing in you. And appreciating from you. What can we can we talk about those awards a little bit? Uh, if, if if you wish, um, you're a humble I'm, guy about it, I guess. Yeah. Well, go ahead. <laughs> okay. Well, we like to. We're blown away. Yeah. In February, you were awarded the uh, one of the top five favorite fall semester professors by resident students. How do you get that? Yeah. I'm not. I'm not. I'm not exactly um, uh, sure about that. Uh, A strong social media presence. Uh, well. No, to be fair. <laughs> I don't have a strong social media presence. Look, getting awards is is a humbling uh, thing. It really is. And I, and I um, if you know me a little bit, it could be my tendency to use humor sometimes to cry, try and distract 
from moments um, when I'm being genuinely emotional. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I'll try and avoid doing that. And I, I don't want to distract from it because that would be an insult to people who've taken the time to do that. Sure. Without without shortening my punches at all, I want to say that, quite frankly, I'm, I'm, I'm overwhelmed by that kind of response in, in a way that I don't think I'll be able to process truly what it means to me for a very, very, very long time. And while awards are nice, the rewards of my job far exceed that. And the fact that some of them see me as a positive part of that humbles me in ways that I'll never really be able to articulate. Yeah, it's nice to know what you're doing is working. Exactly. And clearly reciprocated on both ends, just the mutual respect and appreciation you have for the students and the students have for you. That's, That's an incredible thing to see. You can't fake that. I hope that defines my professional legacy in the classroom, is that it was um, a place in which um, we respected one another, we respected the tradition of what we're doing, and we respected the purpose of education, and we respected, above all, the privilege that we have. Okay, so we got another award. Yeah, the Griffin Football Academic Support Award. Yeah. I didn't know you played on the football team. Yeah. Well, you know, I do try and keep my sporting accomplishments uh, slightly uh, hidden. Yeah. My mother, my mother, once uh, said to me, and she's gone now, so I, I, I'll never be able to get her to contextualize this comment. <laughs> my mother once said to me, John, as an athlete, you're going to make a great scholar. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so, it's like me. Uh, I have a face that, for radio. So here we are. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> unpack that. <laughs> That 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 came as a uh, a wonderful surprise mm-hmm. and, and a lovely honor, and I support the notion of the student athlete. How couldn't I? As a classicist, it's a bread and butter idea to the Greeks and the Romans that there's a relationship between fitness and intellectual rigor, etc. So I like to think that it, it's keeping with my discipline then to support the aspirations of students who want to uh, develop as athletes and as scholars. So that came as a, a lovely surprise and it was a nice chance then for me to work out all my angst of being a failed athlete myself. <laughs> got to go to a banquet and sit at a table uh, which everyone stared at me like what's the classics nerd doing there yeah. um, so you were selected by the class of 2019 to be the faculty last lecturer back in March how, how did that come about when how did you find out did you apply for this were you just selected by the cohort well they say um, bad things happen in threes so yeah. <laughs> let's count bad re- uh, election results Trump Brexit and me being voted last lecturer oh no I guess that completes the series. As far as I understand, <laughs> the graduating class selects a, a faculty member to uh, give them sort of a part of a farewell address. The tradition is quite old here. I did it before in 2017. They'd like to give me a, a, a second crack at it. A do-over. Yeah, a do-over, as they say. So I came back in 2019. <laughs> it's a wonderful event. And for me, one of the things I love about classics is that we don't just give content-based lectures. The other aspect to my life um, is I also teach uh, two languages. Um, as a classics professor, I teach the history, literature, mythology, etc. of the ancient world. But I also then uh, teach students to read ancient Greek and to read Latin. And in, in those kinds of classes, they're so highly interactive and that it's a really, really uh, rewarding experience. And I get to see students go from zero, from absolutely not being able to read a thing 
very quickly I see them building the confidence and strength that goes with mastering an incredibly difficult study like ancient Greek. So to teach the languages to me is deeply rewarding. And we heard that, actually, this was news to me, actually, that to complete the an honors degree in classical studies, that the student has to have a pretty good understanding of either ancient Greek or Latin. Is that correct? I'm going to change one word in your question, may I? Yeah, of course. From has to to gets to. Gets to. Oh, oh that's... Uh, you're yeah. too much. Uh, yeah. <laughs> I know. How terrible. <laughs> um, yeah, as it stands now... Um, the languages remain um, an important part of the traditional way in which a classical uh, studies education is delivered. But that point, Danielle, that you bring up is really, really an interesting one because I say traditionally. Uh, because the world evolves, all things shift and change, um, nothing is permanent, even us, and even our ideas about how education should be delivered, and even what curriculum should be. So that actually presents, I'm so glad you raised it, even though a lot of classicists would hate that you did. Oh. <laughs> uh, I'm so glad that you did, because I'm all about transparency in, uh, in this and pedagogical uh, openness, um, is that I think that's one of the questions we need to ask ourselves most profoundly as classicists because you're right the way you ask the question is right they have to right. not get not get to right. which is the way I like it I want yeah. students to have the opportunity to study the ancient languages as they find them relevant and rewarding to their own purpose of being here but I also recognize the reality that not all of our students um, still require what the ancient languages were intended to do so you've raised there a point of uh, great interest to me um, that is also at the crux of my current research. Can you I give us a little sample of it? Yeah. Sure, I can. Maybe, oh, wait, maybe you could try to say, where art thou in Latin, <laughs> can you? Because that's kind of the title of what we're working on right now. Yeah. <laughs> Ubi S. How, how, how prosaic. Um, I like it. <laughs> if, if, if you want, actually, if you want the more biblical resonant, you might want Quo Vadis. I gave you the ecclesiastical pronunciation quo vadis as the classical pronunciation is. So my research, I published already on an article on Latin language pedagogy, which really asks the question what place it has in tertiary education in the 21st century. I'm also now very interested in tying classical language education with artificial intelligence. I, this artificial intelligence, I think, I think, and so this is some insight, artificial intelligence is obviously, um, I think, yes, upon considering, I think AI is... I'm not cutting that out. No. <laughs> yeah. yeah. John strokes beard and says, AI might be something. Good. Allow me to pontificate on the obvious. Um... <laughs> The idea is that it's only right and common sense that classics should embrace the latest methodologies um, emerging. Classics has always traditionally been a very forward-thinking discipline, and I'd love to see. I think there's something beautifully symbolic about an old traditional discipline 
like the teaching of uh, classical languages tied to the newest methods in artificial intelligence. I think there's something perfect about that relationship. And I'm actually working on developing um, research projects along those very lines so that in the future, ancient Greek and Latin would, would be taught, uh, hopefully, uh, using the latest technologies of artificial intelligence. I think that would be a beautiful uh, marriage of the ancient and the modern. Wow. Um, and on I, that I note... I was going to say, a great note to <laughs> uh, end a... on and look forward to in the future. Yeah. Um, so, John, I want to thank you for talking to us. For a guy that really deals in classical studies and history and what happened in the past, you really seem to be someone that's uh, teaching and living in the moment. Yes. And people really pick up on that. Yeah. And anybody that's taking a course or... Um, learning with you um, uh, is a lucky person. Absolutely. Thank you very Thanks. much. And we are Thank very, very fortunate that. to have you uh, come talk to us and to shine a light into your world right now. So it's great. Oh my gosh. Could I, can I just say one thing? Thank you for taking the time. I really appreciate that. And Paul, when you said learning with me, Wow, that, that really struck a chord with me uh, because that's the model I want uh, students in, uh, who, who meet me to understand. And that learning with me is such an important uh, but small word, word, thank you. And when students refer, I bring it up to them all the time. They say to me when they come into my office hours, they say, I'm in your classics class. And I say, nope. I say, it's our class. <laughs> awesome. Thanks, John. Thanks, John. Bye-bye, guys. Bye. Cheers. Bye. That went really well. It's great to see the College of Arts reaching what seems to be every college on campus. Yeah, I, I'm just glad he didn't hang up on us. And Danielle, all apologies. I got the wrong John and the wrong Grease. Yeah, you were shamalamading dong wrong. Whoa! Yeah! <laughs> Thank you for listening to episode two of Where Arts Thou? Uh, don't forget, Griffin's Read is coming up, so we hope you have your books ready. Uh, if you have any questions about next year's Italy trip, please contact John Walsh at waljo at uoguelph.ca. Don't forget to rate review, share, and subscribe, and follow us on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter at UOG underscore arts. For anything arts-related, check out the arts website at uoguelph.ca slash arts. Oh, that reminds me. I have to order the Oracle of Delphi on Amazon. Oh, does it have Bluetooth? No, just Wi-Fi. Hmm. Oobly-ass. Quo Vadis.